episode, we open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 22, verse 30, through about verse 24 of the next chapter. In the ancient streets of Jerusalem, the Apostle Paul, once a persecutor, now a devout believer, stands defiantly before the Sanhedrin. And as accusations fly and conflicts ignite, deep divisions among the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to light. But just as Paul maneuvers through this legal labyrinth, a more insidious danger lurks in the shadows, a secret band of conspirators vowing not to eat or drink until they've ended his life. Well, as the clock ticks and threats mount, will a timely divine revelation and the intervention of Roman soldiers be enough to keep Paul safe? Well, we'll find out today. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Monday, August 28th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, joining me as my guest is the Reverend Dr. Lucas Woodford. He's the president of the Minnesota South District of the LCMS and also associate pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Farmington, Minnesota. Good morning, Pastor Woodford, and welcome to the program. Good morning. Great to be with you. Well, it's a delight to have you with us also. Um, I know that you've been on KFUO plenty of times before, and perhaps even Thy Strong Word, I'm not sure, but this is the first time you've been on the show with me as host. So, brother, I'd like to give you a chance just to share with the folks who you are and how God's working through you in your ministry, both as the district president and also as a, the associate pastor there at Trinity. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you. Yeah, um, I've... Uh been here at uh, in the district position now uh, just beginning the, our first year of my second term so about five years we we had the extra year uh, called the, I call it the Mulligan year because of COVID of course so I've been here about five years but I've also been serving as the associate pastor in Trinity Farmington since 2020 as well prior to that I was uh, parish pastor in Zion and Mayer Minnesota for about 13 years uh, congregation and school uh, that we had there, is a, and I uh, had an associate pastor with me uh, there. And then before that, I was in Wisconsin um, for there for about two and a half years in Cedarburg, First Emmanuel Cedarburg, Wisconsin. Um, I uh, uh, not only pastor, district president, but uh, first vocation as a husband. Uh, my wife and Beck and I have been. Uh, 26 years married now. We have seven kids, uh, ages 19 down to one and a half. And so we're a lively household. And it's a joy to serve in each of the vocations that I, I serve in as a husband, a father, certainly as a pastor. Our congregation will be getting our fall confirmation kickoff here this coming weekend, tomorrow, in fact. And so it's a joy for the start of that includes one of my seven children in that as well. A district, we are uh, gearing up for all of the, the fall activities that we have, all of our fall uh, meetings and then fall pastors conference coming up. So host of different things, just like uh, across the synod in the fall activities, quite busy for many of our beloved pastors and congregations. 
Well, I appreciate how busy you are, and I'm just grateful that you've uh, been able to carve out some time to spend with us here on Thy Strong Word. We're going to be getting into the book of Acts, chapter 22, about halfway. We've already covered the first half. We're going to cover the second half today, plus the first half of the next chapter. That's just seems to be how I divided things up. Um, I tell you what, though, before we get into any of it, I'd like to invite you to start our time together in prayer. Certainly. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your grace that you give to us through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray for the many church workers around our districts, around our synod, in our congregations, and ask that you continue to bless and sustain them. And for all of our listeners this morning, that you would lead them forward in a lively and confident faith in Christ our Lord. And as we explore the text this morning and Paul's witness to Christ, that you would, by it, continue to strengthen us for that daily witness to Christ in our lives. So bless our time together. Lead us forward. Keep us ever mindful of that promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We pray this all in that strong name of Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, brother, uh, before we head into our text, it might be a good idea to give some folks the the background uh, against which we find ourselves here, right? So Paul is, well, he's gotten himself into some trouble again. It seems to be his M.O. as he goes around spreading the gospel of Jesus, the people around him, some of them, aren't too keen on that, especially the religious leaders. So I guess just catch folks up. What has happened to get us to where we are today? Certainly. Well, in uh, Acts 20, backing up just a little bit, Paul's in Miletus, and there he speaks to the elders at Ephesus regarding what it was going to be, he knew, his permanent departure from them. And so there was some great grief that they have. So then he sets sail and heads out and goes over back to Jerusalem. There in chapter 21, he visits James. And there he has conversations with uh, the disciples, the believers there, and looks then to purify himself at the temple and pay for the purification rites of four other men under a vow. And he's doing that to show the Jews that were questioning his authenticity as a faithful Jew that he still honors the law of Moses. So he's going to show himself at the temple. Now, when he's at the temple, getting into the later chapters of our later verses of chapter 21, Uh, Jews from Asia, and it's likely those from Ephesus where Paul had interactions and encounters with them before, they see Paul at the temple and they create a massive uproar regarding Paul and his uh, alleged disavowal of the Mosaic law. Now, they also are alleging that Paul is defiling the temple by bringing Gentiles into it. Uh, It was an Ephesian that Trophimus that he had brought with him that they saw not in the temple, but out walking around with Paul. So they grab Paul. They begin beating him, looking to kill him. And then the Roman tribune, the commander there, hears of the chaos and brings soldiers in, retrieves Paul. They bind him, bring him to the steps of the barracks. And then Paul speaks to the tribune in Greek and then requests permission to address the crowd. Paul speaks to the crowd now in Hebrew and then recounts his credentials as a Pharisee, a student of Gamaliel, strict observer of the law, persecutor then of the way his Damascus conversation and his ensuing blindness, his restoration of sight, his own baptism, even a recounting of Stephen's stoning, but then his call to serve Christ and to go to the Gentiles. Now, when he says he's going to the Gentiles, the Jews stop listening, they shout again in uproar, and then 
Claudius Lysias, the Roman officer there, the tribune, he has to intervene again and takes Paul into the barracks. He was about to have him flogged, but Paul invokes his Roman citizenship, which startles the tribune because Roman law doesn't allow for citizens to be bound, beaten, or flogged without a proper trial. So that kind of sets us up right to where we're getting at today, going into the, the end of Acts 22. Well, let's look that. You know, I, I, I said it was the second half. I just realized it's actually just the very last verse. And we're going to read that uh, verse 30 of chapter 22. Here we go. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God and in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Let's just pause there for just a moment, right? So we've just gotten a few verses in. Uh, but we, we see here Paul is being brought before the Sanhedrin. Um, when he was before the tribunal and they ordered him to be struck and they were afraid because he was a Roman citizen, uh, why the change in attitude here? I mean... They're ordering him to be struck, and they're treating him poorly. I mean, what what's going on? Yeah. Well, you see the difference there between the, the national uh, secular authorities versus the religious authorities there. So the Roman law, where uh, the, the Roman commander there, uh, we know his name is uh, Lysias, because later on in chapter 23 and 24, we, we see he writes a letter to the Felix, the, the governor who had replaced Pontius Pilate. But so Lysias takes his job seriously and uh, the citizen, the rights of citizens seriously. However, in the Sanhedrin, the religious law, the injustice and outrage that they perceived Paul to be perpetrating, they felt entitled them uh, to dismiss the Mosaic law, which uh, we can look at that particular verse that Paul actually alludes to. And to strike Paul in the mouth because they are discontent at minimum with what they perceive his behavior to be regarding the Mosaic law and upholding the law. And so because of that, they are going after him to try and intimidate him and to make him know that even though there's the secular law, the national law the of the Romans, the religious law is, supersedes that and they want to make sure Paul is if you will, put in his place, especially uh, that the high priest was the one talking to him. And speaking of the high priest, you know, he says in verse 5, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it's written, and then he quotes, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Uh, but why did he not, why does he say this, I guess is what I'm asking. I mean, I, is it? it's possible he really just didn't know who the current high priest was, um, or was it more kind of a jab at him thinking, well, 
really a high priest wouldn't behave in this way. So how do you read that? Do you think it's being a little ironic? Yes, I do. I think you're right on with that. I think um, if you just look at the straight words, you might say, oh, is he got bad eyesight? And even I think there are those throughout commentators through history have said, maybe he's got bad eyesight. I think that's a misreading of the the text. He's uh, being tongue in cheek here because he's uh, simply saying, look, I didn't know that you're the high priest because the high priest should not be conducting himself in such a manner. There was essentially Paul's calling out the hypocrisy of Ananias. Uh, The Mosaic law, which he was alluding to essentially is Leviticus 19.15, which speaks about how courts are to be conducted by God's people, the Israelites or the Jews there. And they claimed that Paul violated the law but now they were openly violating itself. Leviticus 19.15 says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor, or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And they skipped right over that and just smacked Paul in the face. And so right. there, Paul was saying, oh, I didn't know you were the high priest, so he could try to do it tongue in cheek, but saying he, you shouldn't do it. Now, and as he's saying that, he's uh, recognizing first the law that he was alluding to or had in the background, but also then he simply quotes the Mosaic law about uh, showing honor uh, to the high priest. And so that's, he's quoting from Exodus twenty two twenty eight about not speaking evil of a ruler. Now, what's interesting, if I might just run on a little tangent here, the, 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 the high priest here is Ananias. Now, just the name itself might evoke some familiarity with people about the name Ananias. And there's a lot of uh, people in scripture by the name or similar version of Ananias or Annas, if if you will. Now, in this case, we know the high priest Ananias from the Jewish historian Josephus. He was the high priest from 47 to 58. And this is a different individual than the other Ananiases that have been mentioned up to this point in scripture. Now, first we'll stick with him. He was known, again, through Josephus, we understand he was rather cruel, and he was despised by many. He was likely himself a Sadducee, uh, and so more of the elitist part of the uh, Jewish sect uh, clubs, if you will. And he wasn't afraid to use the political means to get his way. And Ultimately, at the start of the Jewish revolt in AD 66, uh, history records that he himself then was assassinated by what were called the dagger men, the Sicarii, uh, who he had employed before against other people. And at 66 and then till 70, when Jerusalem was finally destroyed um, by the Romans because of their revolt. But he himself was quite ruthless in his ruling, if you will, and so was being very convenient in how he was going to apply the law to Paul. Now, the other Ananiases that we might think of, there's Ananias and Sapphira, of course, from Acts chapter 5, different individual, not the same one here. And as well, you might, uh, listeners might remember of Annas, or some call Ananias, the father-in-law to Caiaphas, who was the high priest during Jesus's trial. And Jesus went to Annas, then the father-in-law of Caiaphas, before he went to Caiaphas. And so we do have a record of what seems to be them in Acts 4, verse 6, again, when the apostle Peter and John 
not long after Jesus' ascension, are brought before the whole council for the healing of a lame beggar uh, in the name of Jesus. So just by way of doing a little rabbit trail, running down on Ananias the high priest and others by his name. But in this case, Ananias, rather ruthless, and was just using the law as he saw you fit to try and oppress Paul. Let's look at um, what happens next, because I, I think that Paul is being, um, let's just say, shrewd in the way he interacts once he sees that we have some opposing political parties here. So let's read verses 6 through, I'd say, 10. Here we go. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. All right, we're going to stop there, the end of verse 10. So Paul looks around and he says, Ah, oh, okay, we've got a big group of passionate Pharisees and Sadducees. I, I think he throws that, uh, that time bomb right into the, maybe even a grenade, right into the middle of them and causes them to argue. Do you think he did that on purpose? I do. I think Paul is quite shrewd. He recognizes the challenge that's before him and the likelihood of getting any kind of fair hearing, if you will, even if it was to be based on the Mosaic law, wasn't going to happen. And so recognizing that, uh, being shrewd as he was, he says, look, I'm a Pharisee, and it's because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And so instantly, uh, it creates this long, uh, what's been a long-standing division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then gains himself some supporters among the Pharisees. Uh, so I think he was quite shrewd on his part. And this, this, this uh, verses here, there's so much that could be unpacked. So depending on time and where you might want to go, just the differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, then we've got the whole point of the resurrection, then angels and spirits, all kinds of things that for us as New Testament, of course, uh, recognition of the resurrection of Christ and uh, the resurrection and the life uh, that we can unpack for believers today. Uh, so I'm happy to dig into any one of those if it if you'd well, like. I'll tell you what, you know, we talk about Pharisees and Sadducees a lot, and we know a little bit of the differences based on texts like this. Uh, but when I explain it in a general way, I like to—and uh, and correct me if I've gotten it wrong all these years, but I said the—one uh, way to look at it is the Pharisees are kind of like the— uber conservatives and the Sadducees are a little bit like the liberals if we had to attach uh, American terms to them. Um, so they both uh, kind of have these perspectives. And I think Paul here is manipulating their divisions to kind of illustrate, I guess, a point, maybe get himself off the hook. 
But I don't know that a lot of our people really know the differences between Pharisees and Sadducees. So uh, why don't we go into that a little bit? We have a few minutes before the break, and we can pick up more after the break. But uh, let us know, what are exactly the differences? How, how can we understand them? Sure. I think it, the general characterization that you gave is very helpful. You, you might say the Pharisees, the, the hyper-conservatives and the Sadducees, um, more the, the liberals. But at the same time, the Sadducees are also the elites. Uh, and now that's, again, consistent potentially with some of our uh, <laughs> divisions, if you will, right. in, in our secular world. But they were oftentimes more lenient or willing to embrace the Hellenization of culture. And so to work with the and be pragmatic in how they upheld things. And so um, being as zealous for the law as the Pharisees were would sometimes not be helpful. And so uh, they were of a different mind than the Pharisees this way. And the Pharisees uh, took uh, a view of the oral tradition and understanding of the law and the ritualistic temple worship all very seriously. And so uh, the the differences between the two were significant, but they remained united in since they were still opposed to the Roman occupy, uh, occupation of Israel. Uh, and so the differences there, uh, Paul was pulling out when it came to the, if you will, the spiritual differences uh, that were quite significant to throw them into unrest. But also he wanted to bring out and testify to the truth of the resurrection, which the uh, Pharisees certainly have held as they hold not just to the Torah, but the whole of the Old Testament. Uh, versus the Sadducees that might be only on the Torah, the, the Pentateuch. Uh, and so um, there are some general differences uh, just between the, the two parties. And I, I should say uh, as well that uh, the uh, high priest at this time was likely, of course, a, a Sadducee. And so some of the elitist uh, tendencies that might come with that as well uh, exacerbated the differences, the internal differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. So folks, don't go anywhere. When Pastor Woodford and I return, we're going to keep on going through Acts chapter 23. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me this morning is the Reverend Dr. Lucas Woodford. He's president of the Minnesota South District of the LCMS and associate pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Farmington, Minnesota. 
Friends, it's always a blessing to be in God's Word, and I'm so thankful that each of you are with us this morning as we study the book of Acts. You know I love hearing from guests. I'm happy to answer any questions you have, so you can reach me by email at pastorboo at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook. Just search for Phil Boo. If you'd like to drop me a note just to say hi, I love that. But when you do, please let me know where you're listening from and how you connect to the show. Do you listen over the air in the St. Louis area on 850 AM? Or do you hear the program as a podcast or online at KFUO.org? Or do you use the KFUO radio app on your phone? However you connect, I'd love to hear about it, but I'm just grateful you're here. So let's get back to the Bible. Pastor, before the break, you were giving us the differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. I think sometimes we forget that the nature of humans to kind of divide themselves up into groups, whether they be political or religious or ethnic or any other group, it really is kind of part of a fabric of who we are. We're always sort of dividing ourselves and the gospel calls us to be united together under Christ. But I guess even in that way, we're dividing ourselves into believers and unbelievers. So it looks like Paul is using our natural, I guess, prejudices against one another uh, to, to his advantage because the Pharisees and the Sadducees start to argue so much so that, well, it says in verse 10, the dissension became violent and they were afraid that Paul was going to be torn in pieces. So they took him to the barracks, and that's where we last left Paul. Uh, what else about this section is important for people to know? Yeah, I think just pointing out the, the differences of where what the Sadducees did not believe, namely that there was no resurrection or did not believe in angels or no, no spirits. Part of trying to figure out why they did not believe this difficult, because after 70 AD, after the destruction of Jerusalem, nothing survived specifically from the Sadducees' uh, view of things themselves. So we have to just essentially piece together a lot from the historical tradition, uh, things like Josephus, but also what Scripture says here. Now, I think it is worth looking at and exploring what the Sadducees claimed was not real and what Scripture is very clear as realness is the centrality of Scripture, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead. So I think the biblical doctrine, I think, is about resurrection, even angels and spirits, is both prevalent in the Old and New Testaments. And I think it's good for hearers just to reaffirm to them of that. For example, the resurrection, uh, Abraham upheld the resurrection, testified to by the book of Hebrews, when he was looking at his willingness to sacrifice his own son was because of his belief and acknowledged that God could raise the dead. Job speaks of the resurrection. In fact, it's where we get one of the more familiar Easter hymns in those fam very familiar passages from Job 19, when it says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eye shall behold, and not another, how my heart faints within me. So uh, testifying to the truth of the resurrection, certainly held in the Old Testament. But of course, the whole point of the New Testament, where Jesus was coming, and that familiar account of John 11, when he's talking to uh, Mary and Martha, where he says, 
I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, so profound hope that we have. Anyone that's ever lost a loved one, whether that was unexpected or more expected uh, circumstances, the hope of the resurrection is what carries us through in the midst of tremendous grief. Christ's death on the cross uh, to forgive sins, to justify us, and then his resurrection to bring us that hope and that confidence leads us through. And so that's what Paul's whole missionary journeys was. He was there telling the truth about the death and resurrection of Christ and the coming resurrection of all flesh. Now, well, Paul, I was, but I want to ask you something. How do you think? How do you think the Sadducees? Uh, maybe you know, or you'd like to give an educated guess. But how do they get to the point where they deny some basic teachings of the Old Testament or the, their scriptures? Right? How do they get to that point? Well, that that is the question. I think I'm not a good Sadducee scholar. I'm not sure how <laughs> sure. many are out there themselves. But here's my educated guess on it. I think it's because they did not. Uh, subscribe to the other Old Testament books outside the first five books of the Bible as the most authoritative, they were more willing to disregard these other biblical accounts that we would readily point to and say, look, there, it's right here. It demonstrates it right here. Um, and so they were willing to dismiss it because it wasn't part of the Torah, the, the Mosaic books of which they upheld as the prime importance. So I think essentially that's where it's going to come from. Now, others may have more insight on that. Perhaps sure, uh, sure. you do as well. But I think that's in general because it's not overtly or explicitly acknowledged in ways to their satisfaction in those first five books of the Bible or of the Old Testament, their Bible. That's why it was easier for them to be willing to dismiss that. Well, their inclination to accept certain parts of the Bible as more authoritative than the other is reflective in some of the, I guess, Sadducees of this day, right? Who want to go along with the culture, who really want to be part of the elite. They don't want to be outsiders. They toss out the parts of the Bible that don't either mesh with society that they're trying to impress or they just don't like. And uh, so I, I do, I see, I see a lot of that still happening today. We talk so much about Pharisees because I guess all the run-ins Jesus had with them, but we rarely talk about Sadducees. And yet, I think we have a, a whole new crop of neo-Sadducees in uh, in the religious midst today. I don't know. What do you think? No, I agree. I think what's instructive, I think, here is in terms of just categories, if we look at it that way, where Pharisees were often, and the term itself being a Pharisee, is indicative of being a hypocrite, uh, and that's instructive for us within the church. Sadducees, likewise, uh, on the other side, the liberal side, if you will, and we use that uh, side of things, that the affiliation with um, more being with the, if you will, the times and the culture than it is uh, the object of truth of God's word. The Sadducees are also instructive for us about what it means to try and think one is the elite and knows better and the silly beliefs that you would have. We need to dismiss them and get with the times. So I think that's, that's actually quite instructive. But, you know, of all the doctrines to deny, it seems like denying the resurrection. And I, I guess I understand a little bit perhaps how they came to that conclusion, right? So the parts of the Bible they held in high esteem weren't super explicit about it, therefore they aren't. But isn't that, in, in some ways, kind of the default of all religious hope? And I mean even in other uh, faith traditions or even different religious bodies. That is, 
there's this life after death. And for the Christian, resurrection is the understood way that God has designed us to uh, come back, right? Body and soul being resurrected from the dead, not heaven forever, but new heavens and new earth. But assuming just in general, let's look at it from, say, the unreligious person's point of view, religions talk about what happens when you die. I mean, it's simplistic, but that's one way people look at it. So the Sadducees, it's kind of like if they're just dead and gone, then, I mean, I hate to say it, and I know that our faith is deeper than this, but what's the point? (laughs) What's the point if there's no hope of eternal life? Right. Well, I think the point for them then becomes the here and now and getting, then it comes to a struggle over power and position and prestige and influence. And so that's essentially what uh, they would do and why they were willing to use the the means of the culture to try and achieve that. So it was a a, a quasi um, a view of their nation of Israel. They wanted to be in charge, but yet they didn't want to hold the purity to it, which the Pharisees had. So their point becomes only the here and now. And again, we can do the parallels to where it's at now, the non-religious or the hedonistic uh, tendencies of today. The materialism of our culture, where it says get all you can and then can all you get, uh, that's where mm-hmm. life is. The point is where we're at just right now is to live life to the fullest. Or years ago, Charlie Sheen said life is about winning. And so then it becomes only about a self-indulgent time. And that's really what we're, as Christians, battling with within our American culture is the tendency of I want to live my life and live it my way, and don't you dare tell me I can't do it. Hmm. Well, you know, and it's interesting, we're talking about the resurrection, but they also explicitly don't believe in angels or spirits. And honestly, I don't remember the exact situation. I think I was just reading online, and someone attempting to mock Americans cited some study, a poll, that found that nearly seven in 10 U.S. adults believe in angels. And so they were using this statistic as sort of an example of these backwards kind of dumb Americans. And the Sadducees of that time would have agreed with that assessment, all believing in angels and spirits. But angels and spirits, despite how they may sound to the unbeliever, are explicitly a part of our spiritual reality, are they not? Right. Absolutely, they are. And this is a quite a fascinating thing. Um, and I do. I would like to come back around to one more thing on the resurrection. If we could. Oh, please do. Please do. Well, no, go ahead now and let's move on to angels and spirits. Well, sure. so, I think both are important. Yeah. Okay. So um, the last point on the, the resurrection, I think, is so helpful for us as Christians that uh, being creedal Christians as well, we regularly confess this belief, the, the teaching of scriptures, in our creeds that we would use regularly, Nicene or the Apostles' Creed. The, the Nicene Creed concludes by, I acknowledge one baptism for the mission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and life of the world to come. And then the Apostles' Creed ends with, I believe in the Holy Spirit, Holy Christian Church, communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Um, now, what's interesting, I think, and why important here is, um, what we, when we divide up in these creeds, it puts this belief, the uh, writers of the creeds put this belief that we have, which is straight from Scripture, in what we call the third article of each one, which flows out of the Holy Spirit uh, creating that. And for us, we have to think, well, that's from Jesus. That would be the second article. 
uh, what Jesus, of course, his death and resurrection uh, brought forth our atonement for us and our justification and was the first fruits from the dead coming forward and so paving the way, if you will, for us. But it's the Holy Spirit, the work that brings that work about to us because that's part parcel with faith. And the Holy Spirit is the one who calls us by the gospel. And so the small catechism explanation of the third article is always so helpful. It's, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gift, sanctified and kept me in one true faith. And then it concludes, on the last day, he will raise me and all the dead and give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. And so again, this is just uh, an exclamation point about the life we live and the faith we have uh, and the importance of the faith coming by the work of the gospel where the Holy Spirit is at work and that will bring about that resurrection of the dead. Uh, and so just a comforting, um, if anyone that's lost a, a loved ones have this great comfort, I early on I lost a sister when I was uh, four, she was six, and then later on in life when I was 20, uh, uh, 29, lost a brother, and then more recently a brother-in-law. So the resurrection of the dead and that comfort that it brings in the truth that forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body and life everlasting. So just wanted to make sure I uh, got that emphasis in there in our life of faith. So important uh, and comforting because we all deal with death is coming sooner or later, uh, but we face it uh, in the, the confidence of Christ who is the resurrection and the life. Now, um, jumping back up to where you're talking about angels and spirits, I think um, important for us, and certainly angels and spirits still also likewise part of the Christian faith and understanding that. Uh, New Testament-wise, of course, that's how it begins with the angels coming to um, Mary uh, and Joseph in a dream and then announcing the birth of Jesus. So angels quite clear there. But even in the Old Testament, again, we can go to Job. The Old Testament accounts there that divine meeting of God with the angels and then Satan even being able to come and uh, talk to God with uh, with God and his angels. Then the book of Revelation talks about war in heaven with the archangel Michael and his army of angels defeating Satan and his angels. So certainly the presence are there, but here's a very interesting one, I think, at least I've often uh, thought of that, where Jesus speaks of, in Matthew 18, Jesus speaks of angels assigned to children. Uh, I find that uh, quite comforting in, in many respects. What does that all mean? We don't know if we could, what, when I teach on it, if we could put on spiritual eyeglasses to see the reality of certainly the angels, but then, of course, demons as well, the, the reality of that, and then the contaminating effects of sin and how that impacts the spiritual realm, always a fascinating thing to explore. But I, I like how Luther's evening prayer even invokes the Lord to move his angels to protect us. If you remember that, maybe listeners use that. It says, I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you've graciously kept me this day. I pray you would forgive me all my sins where I've done wrong. Graciously keep me this night. And into your hands I commend myself, my body, my soul, and all things. And then it says this, let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. So angels certainly um, certainly prevalent in the, the scriptures and a reality that we believe in. We don't fully understand, and that's okay, uh, but we can dig deep into scriptures itself. And if you want, we can hop in a little bit on spirits too, uh, if that would be helpful and you want to explore that if we've got time. 
Yeah, let's do a little bit and then let's move on to the conspiracy to kill Paul because we want to make sure we get that under our belt today. You bet. All right, just quickly then on spirits too, they're again noted both in the Old and New Testaments. And we can debate, what do you mean by spirits? Are they demons? Are they ghosts? The New Testament talks about clean and unclean spirits are evil spirits. Um, So in the Old Testament, Saul was afflicted by an evil spirit. But here's the interesting thing evil spirit from the Lord, 1 Samuel 16. Now, what does that all mean? We don't fully understand, but we know they're they're present. Saul likewise attempted to try and use a medium or a necromancer, the old word there, a witch to conjure up the spirit or ghost of Samuel. And uh, so their presence there. And then finally, we see it all over in the New Testament where Jesus is casting out unclean spirits or the evil spirits. He's casting out demons uh, regularly. And uh, by way of bringing a a conclusion to this, I think society itself recognizes at least a fascination by this possibility because the most popular genre of movies right now are horror movies, often with the occult. Uh, And so it's they're fascinated by it and the possibility of it. It freaks people out, but then they don't know what to do with it. Well, Christians, we certainly know what to do with it. Uh, and where to point them in the truth of Christ, who is a Lord over all, including all evil spirits. Let us move on to the next section, and we're going to read about a conspiracy that ensues involving Paul. Here we go. Uh, Actually, we're going to be beginning with verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he went and he entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring you this young man. He has something to say to you. And the tribune took him by the hand, and going aside, asked him privately, What is this that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they have killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. And just a couple verses from tomorrow for context's sake. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, and that's what we're going to hear tomorrow. But this section right here, so you have a... 40 Jews, more than 40 Jews, who said, we're not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. And they go 
and they convince the Sanhedrin of this, this plan, or, or who are they convincing? What, how is this taking place? I mean, it's, I think if they came to me and said, well, hey, 40 of us aren't going to eat or drink until Paul's dead, I would say that that's their problem. They shouldn't have bound themselves to such a thing. But how is this transpiring? We know that Paul is going to be kind of whisked out of it, but what do they hope to accomplish? Well, right. They are so opposed to Paul, uh, his message, as well as the person that he is and the trouble that he has stirred up, which often means also a threat to their position. They are willing to go to great extremes to try and remove him and kill him in this instance. Now, it's set up, I think it's, though it's just one quick verse, it's set up by the Lord coming to him to take courage and giving him an encouragement. But it, I think it's helping us as the readers understand the great turmoil and the danger that comes that was coming Paul's way. And so the encouragement for him is there, and so to stand firm. But then we get this insight of everything that's going on behind the scenes, which includes this great plot that includes 40 to try and kill him. Now, uh, the oath that they take, it's not uncommon to bind oneself to an oath within the Jewish culture, uh, but they're not going to eat or drink until they've done it. Now, they'd have to uphold that oath, but the high priest could certainly, or chief priest could certainly uh, release them of that at a particular time. But to go to this extreme, and that number of them tells you the fanatical nature of this group or this sect of uh, Jews within the Pharisees and Sadducees. And I think it's, again, instructive of there's this nationalistic tendency perhaps uh, within them because he was a threat to their movement to try and assert themselves and the Jewish nation. And they had to remove him for that because they didn't want him impeding on that. I think we can look at the nationalistic tendencies, again, within our secular culture, and we can see extremists the same in our culture, but also certainly in other cultures as well. The fanaticism that is always uh, potentially rampant with any particular sect of beliefs. And we can go across the, the different religions, various Muslim parties, Middle East, surrounding countries. Uh, recently, India has, is making the news with mobs and some of the fanatics that are being stirred up there. And so Paul, they're trying to go after him uh, to oust him. And so I think it's instructive, though, that um, Lysias, the, the tribune, recognizes the potential uh, for a great battle or war by the number of soldiers and spearmen, it says here, and horses that he musters, if you will, to move Paul at the, uh, the nine o'clock, what we would consider nine o'clock at night to move him in safety. Uh, so it's it's quite a significant event that they're getting that many people together. That takes some orchestration. That takes some networking. That many 40 people that are going to assault him and then getting that many soldiers to protect him uh, is quite profound. I mean, it's quite the conspiracy. And you were talking about how this really relates in some ways to what we see going on today in the rise of um, some of the extreme American nationalists and some other extremism that's happening. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Like, how do we see this going on today? And maybe even more importantly, how do we as Christians address it? Yeah, I think 
it that's a, a very timely issue and it's a it's a challenging issue as well so that the nationalism uh, on the one hand so nationalism itself means for uh, standing for one's country and what one uh, views of their nation uh, but then there's various layers that can be added to it a very unfortunate and terrible one is a, what's called a white nationalistic tendency which has uh, been asserting the uh, truth of the white, if you will, race. And of course, we abhor any racism. Scriptures uh, vehemently opposed to that. Uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, vehemently opposed to all such racism. Uh, and the reality is of, of Christ's love and our defense of our neighbor. But these tendencies are present today in the, in the, in the nationalistic tendencies. And they have various shades depending on one's political affiliation or ideological affiliation. And we always got to peel back the onion to see what's really behind it uh, and, and what's pushing it forward. And so in the political world for our U.S. culture, we have a, a two-party system, essentially. There are, of course, various shades along the way. But as Christians, our allegiance is not to a political party first. Certainly, we can be uh, advocates of a political party as a citizen and the platforms which they may uphold, but only insofar as it overlaps with the truth of scriptures. And so that we are always first and foremost, our allegiances to Christ our Lord uh, and to him, and we follow the truth of scripture. And where those truths morally uh, lead us, as well as then... Um, where we might have a philosophy of government, where that doesn't transgress the truth of God's word. We're free to pursue that and use reason and good sense and exercise civic vocation or even serve in offices that will be for the good of all humanity, not for a select group or not for anything that proposes something to oppress other people, whether that's based on uh, nationality or race, uh, as people would have it. So we find ourselves in some very difficult times. And you, you add into that the digital world that we're in and things going viral, and you see how that can amp up uh, any particular situation and get people really on edge. Agreed. I, I've always said that I don't believe the Christian really fits neatly into either of the two major political parties represented in our country, or probably none of the third-party options either. I mean, Christianity is what it is, and I think that the political parties, uh, perhaps one is definitely more friendly to the concepts of Christianity, but I don't think there's a, a Christian party out there that all Christians could feel comfortable being a part of. I'm not sure how you see that, but we have to be very careful about um, about how we interact in the world because there is a life uh, beyond this life. There is a world coming. Uh, at the same time, we have a responsibility to this one, so it's an interesting tightrope that we walk. Very much so, and I think because uh, the, the challenge people become so passionate about the, their political party, but as Christians, we have to be willing to check ourselves or check our political beliefs and let our Christian beliefs trump those as we go through the messy business of exercising our vocation in defense of our neighbor as a citizen uh, and carrying forward. And so the, the unfortunate nature of this is our, our digital world has uh, exacerbated in 
from manifold um, ways the the willingness to vilify others who we would probably uh, be good neighbors with based on one single issue or based on one comment, whether it's on some social media. And so because they don't say it or don't agree in the particular way, there's this tribalism that comes forward and forces others or tries to pigeonhole them into one place or make them be evil. And so then it's easy to dismiss them, easy to demonize them as wicked and evil and therefore dismiss them. And that's where we get cancel culture from. Um, And I think we're coming at a point in time where our culture is so saturated with it, the oppressive forces in many ways, many are, are growing weary from it. And I'm hopeful that there, as Christians, we're uh, able to bring the light of Christ, where we bring more light and less heat to matters of disagreement, where oftentimes people of goodwill can disagree on things that are neither forbidden nor commanded in Scripture, and it's okay. doesn't mean we're enemies. It means we have to be reasonable and now work it through where Christ remains at the center and leads us forward. But that's not the way of our, our culture. And so many are, are lamenting the challenge we have. And in fact, uh, if we've got time, even this social media, our, our uh, viral sensation, Oliver Anthony's song, Richmond, North of Richmond right now is kind of captivating everyone the last seven or 10 days for really, I think, what it's tapping into part of these, uh, the challenges that many people are facing today. Bring more light, less heat. I love that. We're going to have to end with it there, though. We're at the end of our program. Uh, But I'm very grateful to the Reverend Dr. Lucas Woodford. He's the president of the Minnesota South District of the LCMS. He's also associate pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Farmington, Minnesota, keeping himself on the front lines. We appreciate that, too. Brother, thank you for being on the show. It's been a delight. Thank you. Folks, tomorrow we continue this very conversation. I'll have a new guest, but we're going to pick up where Pastor Woodford left off and see how the Tribune and the government responds to this threat against Paul, who, don't forget, is a Roman citizen. Amidst all the conflict and tensions that he faces, a a secretive message is going to reach the ears of the Roman commander. And as night falls, Paul is going to be stealthily escorted by a battalion of soldiers, and he's going to end up proclaiming the faith before the highest authorities of the land. From the luxurious chambers of Governor Felix to the court of King Agrippa, don't miss it as Paul passionately defends the faith. That and more tomorrow. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. Amen.